we begin our study of Thessalonian epistles today, eight chapters, uh, look forward to this uh, and uh, see what God has for us in these books. I want you to consider a question. How important is hope? How important is hope? Perhaps, perhaps you're experiencing much difficulty um, at work. Maybe uh, something, uh, you know, pressing deadlines this time of the year or something, and you don't think there's any way you can make it through. Uh, but you remember that you've got a vacation planned in April. And so somehow, some way, every day, you get out of bed, you keep going, keep pushing, keep pressing, and the hope of that vacation kind of keeps you going, you know, whatever that is, golf, beach, whatever, snow, mountains, whatever you like to do, it keeps you going. Or perhaps there's a major surgery in your future. And really it's the hope of recovery and of health that would push you forward that would make you get out of bed in the morning, the day of your surgery, go to the hospital, report in, go through the surgery, because you've got hope beyond it. In the Thessalonian epistles, Paul speaks of the ultimate object of hope. The ultimate object. And to understand more the nature of this Christian hope today, I want to consider three things with you. Three things. And so as we look at this, first of all, we consider the city of Thessalonica. The city of Thessalonica. As the capital city of the province of Macedonia, Thessalonica was a prominent city. Its importance came directly through two factors. Uh, I could give you more, but for sake of time, I think it came through its location and its culture. I want to look first at its location here, and I'll just summarize its location in a few ways for you this morning. And you might consider for a moment, you know, how important is location for something's growth? Um, if we were to think of this just in our modern terms today, you know, uh, how profitable would it be for a business owner to put a gas station at the end of a dead-end road? So there's something wrong with that plan. It's not a good, good location. Or to put a church in some faraway country where no one lives, church building. So it's probably not a good location. In real estate, I hear that the, the main guiding rule is location, location, location. And the same is true of prominent cities in the first century. More specifically, three factors made the location of Thessalonica strategic. First, it was beside the road. It was beside a major road called the Ignatian Way, or the Via Ignatia. This road was connected to the Appian Way, which led straight to Rome. And so the Appian Way and the Ignatian Way were a major thoroughfare, east-west highway from Rome uh, to cities beyond. It was on this road. This road was 10 to feet wide in most locations, and, it would, and the country would narrow down to like 6 feet in some locations. And... And then in the city, like Thessalonica, it would expand to something like 20 feet. 20 feet. Near the city of Thessalonica, the road was known for having traffic problems. So this is not something that's only specific to the Hampton Roads area. Traffic problems. 
The road would be filled with people and carts and mules and horses. One commentator described an ancient traveler by the name of Cicero who hated to go to Thessalonica. He said, when Cicero was exiled in Thessalonica, he delayed his departure from the town, complaining about the difficult traveling, uh, difficulty traveling the Ignatian Way and other routes because of the great volume of traffic. Cicero hated the traffic of Thessalonica. But that aids to its strategic location. It's by the road. Secondly, I'd add this. It was south of the rolling mountains, the Balkan mountains. You can see a picture of them there behind me. This mountain range was the northern border for Macedonia. It was the border of Thessalonica as a city. This meant that the city would be surrounded by tremendous natural resources, including rivers that flowed off of those mountains, fertile soil in the great central plains of Macedonia, abundant rainfall, grazing lands for livestock, and there'd be fish in abundance there as well. Further, I don't know if you can see in the picture, but these mountains uh, had, were forested, and so there was timber that they could use for houses and buildings and so on. The surrounding region was also rich with mines of gold and silver and copper and iron and lead. This was a great place to live. It was a thriving place during the first century. It was south of the ruling mountains. I add to that one other description of its strategic location. It was on the coast. It was on the coast. It was a port city of Macedonia. Thessalonica was the largest and wealthiest port city in the entire province of Macedonia. And so Thessalonica had the distinct advantage of being the only port city that was along the Ignatian Way. So it's a double privilege. They had the road and they had the coast, making this a very strategic place. And its harbor had deep anchorage and protection from dangerous south winds, and so the port also made it a strategic location. The strategic nature of this location was not lost to ancient thinkers. One man by the name of Miletus wrote this. He said, so long as nature does not change, Thessalonica will remain wealthy and fortunate. Wealthy and fortunate. It's, it's got everything going for it. I think its strategic location was not lost in the Apostle Paul either, as he saw this as a great base for strategic ministry, not only to Thessalonica, but to the province of Macedonia. As a matter of fact, Thessalonica and its three advantages, the road, the mountains, and the coast, mirrored the advantages of two other cities where Paul spent the majority of his time. Corinth, which was the leading city and capital of Greece in the south, or Achaia, and Ephesus, which was the leading city or capital of Asia Minor. So Thessalonica is the capital and leading city of Macedonia. Corinth is the leading city and capital of Greece. Ephesus is the leading city and capital of Asia Minor. These three cities were the most strategic seaports in Paul's missionary journeys and formed what I would just call a Pauline triangle. He went back and forth to these locations because he saw that they were strategic. 
was not only that Paul, you know, Paul did not just evangelize cities. Okay, he went to other places too, but he went to these places and he spent much time there because he knew that new believers in these cities could sound out the word of the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, near the end of that chapter, you'll see that Paul says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith to God is spread abroad. So Paul sees Thessalonica as being a very strategic city for the gospel. I've taken the time this morning to go through these descriptions of the city because I want you to see that God worked through Paul in real physical locations. Imagine looking down on this lush, fertile, wealthy port city of 65,000 to 100,000 people. This was a perfect place for the advance of the gospel. You know, as I thought about that this morning, my attention drifted to consider one of our new missionaries, Wesley Davy. Wesley Davy. Wesley packed up his stuff, moved halfway around the world to a strategic location ripe for the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lahore, Pakistan. Lahore is the second largest city in all of Pakistan, the largest city in the Punjab region. It's one of the most influential and cosmopolitan cities in all of Pakistan. It's known as the wealthiest city in Pakistan, and it's also the center of education. People come from all over Punjab and Pakistan for education in Lahore. Its influence affects travelers throughout the whole region. May our hearts and prayers be with Wesley Davies. He takes the gospel to the strategic spot for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may God give us grace to think of more strategic locations like this to follow the heart of the Apostle Paul who says there's a road with travelers and there's mountains, there's resources and there's a port, there's sailors, there's people coming and going. It's a great place to plant a church and start a gospel and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we consider its location. I also want you to consider for a moment its culture. The culture of Thessalonica, ancient Thessalonica, described in this way, it was quite diverse. Two sub-descriptions here. In its diversity, it had a large Jewish population. You know, when Paul went into a city, I think one of the first questions he would always ask is, where's the synagogue? This was his normal practice, to go to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. So as he went into Thessalonica, he had no problems finding a synagogue. As a matter of fact, they had likely had more than one synagogue, which meant that there was a large Jewish population. There was a uh, sarcophagus found, a, a burial casket made out of marble, and there's an inscription on that that, that talks about synagogues, plural, in Thessalonica. I think this is highly likely because Paul gets there in about 50 A.D., just one year after a Roman ruler by the name of Claudius issued an edict in Rome. In 49 A.D., Claudius deports all Jews from the city of Rome. Maybe something like half a million Jews are kicked out of Rome 
Imagine some of those Jews going down the road, right? The Appian Way, the Ignatian Way, and being Jewish refugees in some of the cities along the way. Many of them perhaps landed in Thessalonica. So one commentator, one scholar said that he estimated that as much of, as a third of the, Jewish popu- of the population of ancient Thessalonica was Jewish. They were Jewish. As a matter of fact, there remained a large Jewish population in Thessalonica the whole way until the 1940s. Until an evil ruler by the name of Adolf Hitler killed 60,000 Thessalonian Jews. This was a major Jewish city. But the Jewish people in the city were not very receptive of Paul and his preaching. If you were to look in Acts chapter 17, we won't take the time to go back there, but you could read about Paul's planting the church in Thessalonica. You could say that he started in the synagogue and he proclaimed the word of the gospel, and a few Jews were converted. But the text says large numbers of Greek uh, God-fearing men and prominent women in the city actually formed the basis of much of the conversion of the people. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, we learned that uh, Paul says that he speaks of the church, he says that many of them turned to God from idols, from idolatry. So you think of the, the, the pagan people who turned to Jesus Christ, not the Jewish people, but the pagan people who came to faith in Jesus Christ. So had a large Jewish population although many of the Jews rejected Paul for his preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But I add to this that it was also a city of religious diversity. Many other religious expressions found themselves in the city, and we won't take the time to look at all of these, but there were many false cults there in the city. First Thessalonians reveals that many of them, as I said before, are converted out of idolatry, But the predominant religion of the city was imperial worship. Imperial worship. Since this city was a Roman city, the official religion of the city was the worship of the emperor, the Roman emperor. And the celebration of the imperial cult then was very important to the life of the city. They wanted to maintain peace with Rome. And so they would do this. Sometimes it was genuine worship, sincere. Other times it was just a way of doing politics. We got to do this just to make the Caesar happy. So hail Caesar, worship Caesar. And so in Thessalonica, there, would be, there was a temple there honoring Caesar. There was coinage that they crafted and made that depicted the Caesars as gods. And there were statues in the city of Augustus and Claudius and other Roman empire emperors, they just scattered all throughout the city. Truly, Thessalonica was a pluralistic society where conversion required turning to God from the over 25 known idols found in the city. That leads us to another study. And if you've got a handout, you can pull this on your bulletin. You see the second thing. I want to expose you to is not only the city, but the church, the church at Thessalonica. And we'll just go quickly through this, okay? You could read Acts 17 on your own. You can see that Paul spends a thrilling three weeks in Thessalonica when he plants this church. Paul plants the church there. 
in obedience to a call that he had received, a Macedonian call when he first went to Philippi. He's beaten in Philippi and, and sent out of the city, he goes to Thessalonica. When he's there, he teaches them from Scripture that the Messiah must suffer and die. This, the Jewish people reject him, this controversial teaching, and some Jewish people form a mob of people. Uh, they're called wicked men of the rabble. Okay, some of the translations I like better. I think the King James was certain lewd fellows of the baser sorts. You can't beat that translation there. Form this mob, and they, they want to bring Paul before the proconsul in Thessalonica. But they're not able to find him, so they drag Jason, and named Jason, in front of the city. They, they, they beat him there, and then they decide, because of all this opposition, that they will send Paul away. And so Paul goes to Berea after only three Sabbath days in planting this church in Thessalonica. But what an amazing three weeks it must have been for God to plant a church out of nothing in the city. That leads us to a place where we can begin to talk about the letter to 1 Thessalonians. So we come to this letter, just a few things I think that we should make sure that we understand. First of all, it's authorship. Paul identifies himself with Sylvanus and Timothy in the very first verse of the first chapter. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church. He also identifies himself as the author in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 18. One of the interesting things about this letter is this is one of the earliest letters that the Apostle Paul wrote that was included in the canon of Scripture. Okay, he wrote, likely wrote Galatians first, then 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So as Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, he writes this on his second missionary journey from the city of Corinth, probably in 50 AD or so. He, of course, is helped by Paul and, or by Sylvanus and Timothy in writing it, and Timothy probably takes 1 Thessalonians back to them from where Paul is in Corinth. And then just a short while after that, Paul writes 2 Thessalonians as well. So that's the authorship. I want you to see the structure of the book. When I think of 1 Thessalonians, I think of it in this way. I've had the opportunity to teach it a few times. The first three chapters, Paul is describing or talking about the past experience of the Thessalonian believers. He's talking about the gospel and its impact on them in the past. In the first two chapters, he narrates his time with them when he planted the church. He describes their, the evangelism that occurred and the discipleship and their early faithfulness in following after Jesus Christ in the midst of much affliction. Then in chapter 3, he narrates the past when Timothy had visited them and brings him a report about their faithfulness as well. So if this helps you, first three chapters, the past story of the Thessalonians. But then in chapter 4, he transitions to the future of the gospel in Thessalonica. And it's a strategic, important shift that occurs. For in chapter 4, Paul will begin giving them exhortations about how they must continue to grow in the faith and in their acceptance and reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And the point I'll make in those two chapters, chapters four and five, is that your future is even more glorious than your past. I mean, Paul marvels at how they were converted. But he says in the future, God has even greater things for you, chapters four and five. So as I think of Thessalonica, just think past and future, one through three, four and five. That leads us to consider some of the main themes of this book, and this is where I really like to, <clears throat> I'd really like to drill down and just consider these with you for a moment. <clears throat> now, we, we might expect that if Paul only spent three weeks planting the church, that when he would sit down to write a letter, that he would compose a major doctrinal treatise, something like Romans, right? Or Galatians, maybe. Instead, Paul's epistles are normally pastoral. And so he writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to address very specific needs in the city of Thessalonica and for the Thessalonian believers that they experience there. He broaches subjects that are necessary for the audience that he writes. And so as I study the book, three subjects rise to the surface as far as Paul's main emphasis. First of all, you see the suffering theme. All throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, there is material regarding suffering for believers. Although we don't know much about what they were going through. There are occasional verses. It must have been pretty bad because some of the Thessalonian believers thought that what they were going through was part of the great satanic deception of the end times. Or that was part of the persecution that believers would face in the end. I think we're given a small glimpse of what this opposition may have felt like or been like back in Acts. In Acts chapter 17, we learned there were some overly zealous Jews who chase Paul out of Thessalonica. They go the whole way down to Berea and they chase him out of there too. You know, those Jews at some point had to return back to Thessalonica. I'm sure they made life difficult for the early believers in Jesus Christ in that city. We also know that there was this angry mob of men, wicked men of the rabble who dragged Jason down before the tribunal. And we can only imagine how it would grow worse over time. This suffering, I think, is an ongoing issue for the Thessalonians. And that can be seen as you just read through First and Second Thessalonians. I won't look at all the words that you could look at, but, but for instance, I think you have this in your notes. If you've got a handout, I think you've got this description. The word affliction occurs several times in First and Second Thessalonians. This word can mean pressure or oppression or hardship. It's, it's a general word that's quite flexible that will allow Paul to talk about all the different ways this church is being assaulted. They were greatly afflicted. He adds to that a very important text in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. Why don't you look at that for a second? 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. It says, but though we had already suffered and, and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, what was Paul's shameful treatment that he experienced at Philippi? He was thrown in prison, right? 
thrown in prison, beaten, and it was illegal. He says, although that was true in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Where's that? That's Thessalonica. In the middle of much conflict or struggle, we proclaim the gospel of God to you. We have boldness to do so. And so as we think of the Thessalonian community and the Thessalonian believers, we, we need to understand, essentially, that they endured much suffering and affliction for the cause of Christ. It was a volatile situation, and I think that there appears to be some sort of mounting crisis for believers in Thessalonica. So you got to get this theme down. Suffering. The second theme I draw your attention to is the return of the Lord. If you think of the Thessalonian epistles, you should think of suffering, and you should think of the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Some of you may know this, but every chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with what? See if you do know it. Every chapter ends with a mention of the return of the Lord. Every chapter. There's a theme that Paul's establishing. So look in your Bibles at 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says when you are converted, you're converted to God. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son to come from heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. That's the nature of their conversion. Then look at 1 Thessalonians 2. 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul's considering his own ministry and what he is looking forward to at the coming of Jesus. Look at chapter 3 and verse 13, the end of a prayer that Paul prays for them. He says, chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The Lord will descend from the clouds, Paul says. 4.16. And then look with me at 5, verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So every chapter of this epistle ends with a mention of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a book about the Lord's return. Now just seeing that only scratches the surface of Paul's emphasis on the return of the Lord. Actually, according to my statistics, about 26% of 1 Thessalonians, or 23 out of the 89 verses, deal with the appearing of Jesus Christ from the clouds. And exactly 40% of 2 Thessalonians, 19 out of 47 verses, are about the return of Christ. Thus, almost one-third of these two letters are eschatological in their content. 42 out of 136 verses 
for those of you who like math. I want you to also remember this. These letters are written approximately 15 years after Jesus went to heaven at his ascension. Only 15 years later. These believers in Thessalonica were fully aware that Christ might come back at any moment. So among the New Testament epistles, the Thessalonian epistles uniquely capture the excitement and the anticipation that the earliest believers had for Jesus' return. So Paul's focus here in the end times is apparent as you just look for certain expressions. And again, I just list these in your notes. The phrase, the coming of the Lord, is found three times in 1 Thessalonians and two times in 2 Thessalonians. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is mentioned three times in the first book, two times in the second book. The phrase, taking away or snatching up, is found here as well. And the gathering together, the great assembling together, believers in the future, is also found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Well, we'll say much about these things as we go through the book. What I want you to notice just for our sakes this morning is that Paul puts great emphasis on the return of the Lord. Got it? Second theme, suffering and affliction and the return of the Lord. That leads to one other theme I want to draw your attention to before we hit the purpose. One other theme that you'll see in this book that is unique to 1 Thessalonians involves some necessary Christian virtues, necessary Christian virtues, three crowning virtues that the Thessalonians must manifest as true followers of Jesus Christ. These three virtues are faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. And so Paul gives a prominent spot to them in the Thessalonian epistles. Since the believers at Thessalonica have been called into God's kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ, They must evidence these three things. Again, I give you the statistics. You can look them up this week on your own. The word faith occurs frequently in the Thessalonian epistles 13 times. The word love, 11 times. And the word hope, five times. We could look at at each one of these occurrences, but what I want to draw your attention to are some of the places where these three words are used together. And so... Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. Paul says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In this verse, Paul describes the nature of their testimony when they were converted. When they came to know Jesus Christ, as described back in Acts chapter 17, they were a powerful testimony of three things, faith, love, and hope. Now, these three cardinal Christian virtues are found in a few different places in Paul's epistles, three places. They're found together. They're found together in 1 Thessalonians twice. They're found together in Romans chapter 5. And another place you're probably really familiar with, 1 Corinthians 13. You know that chapter? We call it the great what chapter? Great love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as Paul describes these three words, he gives primacy to love. It says, now remaineth 
these three, or faith, hope, and love, these three, the greatest of these is love. One of the things Paul's emphasizing to the Corinthian church because they needed love was the importance of it by putting it last in the series. Interesting things I would tell you about when it's occurring in 1 Thessalonians is he changes up the order. Changes up the order so that every time hope comes last. Hope comes last. Just like the, the way he ends every chapter, so he gives hope the primacy of place by putting it at the end. I think that Paul is emphasizing the importance of hope and the ultimate object of hope as being the return of the Lord. Go with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. It says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. See two of them there, faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that you may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So Paul asked Timothy, Timothy, how are they doing? It's been so long since I've seen them. Timothy, how is their faith, love, and hope? Timothy gives them a full discussion. Timothy uncovers how their their, um, faith is. It's growing, but it's still lacking. So Paul says, I want to come and I want to increase your faith. And he describes their love that it's growing. And Paul prays it would abound more and more. But there's no mention here of hope. Either Timothy doesn't say anything about hope or Paul does not record it here. Hope, discussion of hope is absent. It's present encounter. Then turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to look at verses 3 and 4. I've got about four minutes left of a voice here. so We'll give it all to Jesus. (laughs) 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Again, here, there's no discussion of hope. At the very least, It appears that their hope drags behind their demonstrations of faith and love. Perhaps it's not as distinguishable as their faith and love. And that leads us to our final study regarding the letter to 1 Thessalonians, its purpose. Why is this book here? So by tracing those three key themes... I think it's possible to articulate a purpose, a main purpose for why Paul wrote this letter. We have three themes, right? Suffering, the Lord's return, 
and necessary Christian virtues, especially hope, I want to suggest to you that the Thessalonians may have been losing hope. They've been losing hope. Perhaps because of the affliction that they were facing. The constant mockery and ostracism that would come as they faced the Jewish population there. The sudden death of loved ones in their assembly caused them to lose hope. And some false teaching about the day of the Lord that had already appeared and somehow missed it caused them to lose hope. And so Paul's answer for this lack of hope comes at the end of 1 Thessalonians. So one last passage to look at. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 and 9. <clears throat> but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Put it on. And for a helmet, hope. What hope? The hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, our salvation sustains and delivers us now, and it will protect us from God's great day of wrath in the future. So Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, don't be deceived, don't lose hope. We will experience full salvation when we see Jesus. When he comes, which I think we'll see in 1 Thessalonians, could be any time. When he comes, we will experience deliverance and full salvation. So don't lose hope. This hope motivates us to endure affliction and suffering with faith and love. I mean, no matter how severe the opposition that we face in this world, no matter what difficulty we come to, hope in Jesus' return will enable us to persevere and be steadfast under fire. So as we close this morning, I want you to consider the example of someone has meant a great deal to our family. Carissa's grandmother went home to be with Christ not too long ago. She was a faithful woman and a zealous, zealous follower of Christ. Her picture is hanging on her fridge. And on this picture are some words inscribed that she often used when she said goodbye as a follower of Christ. She would say this, stay faithful. Jesus is coming again very soon. Not just soon for her, very soon. Or she would say something like, look east. He's coming soon. Be faithful. And she lived much of her life waiting for the appearing of Jesus. Men and women, I want you to take inventory of your own life. How often do you 
throughout the course of your week, consider the ultimate object of hope. Don't hope in lesser things. Instead, hope in the any moment Jesus. Come back at any moment. Experience him forevermore. May hope in Jesus inspire us to persevere and remain steadfast throughout all of the challenges that we face in this life. Sermon text, or the the scripture text that Ben Armstrong read this morning, Paul was praying for the Romans. He says, I'm praying that your hope might be abounding. Is your hope in the anytime Jesus abounding? Do you think of him throughout the week? Is it stirring you on to faith and to good works and to love? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this epistle. First Thessalonians. Lord, if we were to consider what motivates us, what motivates us through difficulties or trials or hard week or month at work, physical issues, suffering, what, what motivates us, we, we would probably come up with a long list of other things, lesser things. Lord, we're thankful for all the different ways you demonstrate hope for us and you give us, give us good things and you bless us and you give us strength, you give us vacations, you give us physical well-being and safety. You help us through many things and we could put our object in or put our hope in any of those objects, but, but Lord, may we be people who have a hope that's settled in the appearance of a person, Jesus. May we know that when Jesus appears and we meet him in the clouds, we will experience full deliverance, full deliverance. For we don't often hear much preaching about the return of the Lord today. But Lord, may this be something that stirs us toward perseverance and steadfastness in our lives and the trials that we face as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.